Unfortunately, the sad reality of any competitive sport is that eventually there will always be someone that comes along who can outperform your favorite or even the most legendary of competitor. Father time plays a role, but especially in the world of combat sports, an accumulation of damage over time can have any number of effects and you never quite know when those signs of aging will start to show themselves. In MMA, we've had countless examples of fan favorites or legends in the sport take on relative unknowns and find themselves at the end of a beating they didn't expect. And in most cases, neither did we, but still had to suffer through the grueling realization that our favorite fighters just didn't have it like they used to. I'm Balian from MMA On Point, and this is 10 times fan favorites got battered. Number 10, Eddie Alvarez versus Timothy Nastyukin. After securing four world titles in four different promotions, Eddie Alvarez left the UFC roster and headed to Asia to compete in one championship, and he made his debut on the same night as another former UFC champion, Demetrius Johnson. Alvarez was already somewhat known to the Japanese market after competing in Dream, and after his title-winning run in the UFC had only grown his profile in the sport, something that was already at cult legend status after his years as the underground king outside of the UFC promotion. He was looking to do the same in one, come in, get paid, and capture the belt. His first opponent was 12-4 Timothy Nasyukin, who'd been competing in one for over five years but had never fought for a title and outside of being known as a devastating first-round finisher, didn't have the most credentialed record. Like DJ Eddie would enter the World Grand Prix, although obviously at lightweight, and the plan was to dispatch Timothy and move on towards the belt. Only things didn't go exactly as planned. Eddie started patiently stalking Timothy, but after getting sat down with a straight right, started to slow. Nasyukin kept throwing bombs at his head and those that landed started to wear on Eddie face as each impact slowed him further. The pressure became too much and he ultimately folded to the canvas. And another one fighter got to make their name off a former UFC champion. Number 9. Misha Tate vs. Ketlin Vieira the return of the former UFC champion Misha Tate was a surprising one. The formative years of women's MMA saw her record at 12-2 where she captured the Strikeforce Bantamweight title in a promotion that was integral in bringing women's MMA into the mainstream. Then her rivalry with Ronda Rousey helped promote them both whilst in Strikeforce and after its collapse as they continued their feud in the UFC and on The Ultimate Fighter. <laughs> after losing the belt to Nunes and after headlining UFC 200, she retired but would make a surprising return five years later, claiming to be in the best shape of her life, with toxic relationships behind her and now competing for the love of the sport and nothing else. She finished Marion Renault in her return fight was catapulted into the top 10 and her next opponent would be Ketlin Vieira and yeah, fans didn't really have any clue who she was, at least not the casuals. The most notable name she had fought was Katzin Gano and that was three years ago. But the UFC matchmakers could see her potential and so she was matched with Misha. It would truly have been a great journey to see her return and fight her way back to the title shot, let alone win the thing and it was a story that fans could get behind. There was just one problem. Catelyn Piera. Round after round began to pick at the swollen and bleeding face of Misha Tate, popping her with crisp combinations and punishing strikes. But she didn't finish her off. Even Daniel Cormier on commentary pointed out that had Vieira continued with an assault, she could finish her opponent, but perhaps due to the level of respect she had for Tate was reluctant to do so. Either way, the fight went to a decision and Tate was undoubtedly battered. I mean, geez, it could have been the opening scene of Kill Bill. And undoubtedly, her fairy tale return didn't have a happy ending, but she's still a pioneer of women's MMA. Number 8. Donald Cerrone vs. Darren Till between 2013 and 2016, Donald Cerrone had 12 UFC fights. He won 11 of them, his only loss being to Rafael Dos Anjos, when, after nearly five years in the promotion, he received his first title shot. The loss prompted him to try his hand up at welterweight, where he had initial success winning four in a row, and it was why Masvidal would put an end to this particular win streak by TKO. Still, Cowboy would go on to fight former champion Robbie Lawler in a fan's dream matchup, and would lose by decision in a fight that didn't really hurt his stock at all. Meanwhile, Darren Till had been making his way up the 170 rankings, who, up until his UFC debut, had fought the entirety of his 
his professional career in Brazil, hence the Scouse Portuguese. Ah, <laughs> No. <laughs> Suffice to say, he was pretty much unknown on his arrival, and although he had four UFC wins, they were all against unknown fighters on fight night cards. Whereas Cowboy was a veteran of classic promotions like the WEC, a longtime member of the UFC roster, where he made his name fighting multiple times a year against any opponent offered. Some even questioned why Cerrone had taken this fight, especially now on a two-fight losing streak and against an unknown and undefeated prospect. Till brought pressure from the get-go and began touching Cerrone's face over and over again. After cracking him with a hard left hand, he chased him down, cornered him against the cage, let fly with a flurry of thunderous blows, and did him like my man Vesemir dispatching the beloved veteran. Okay, maybe not that extreme, but certainly it was a little heartbreaking to see Cowboy once again finished for a second time that year. Obviously, he would bounce back as he always does, and everyone knew who Till was after that. That night, two fights later, he was challenging for a world title. Number seven, Uriah Faber versus Jose Aldo. Uriah Faber fought in more title fights than anyone else in WEC history, defending his own belt five times before losing it to future American top team coach Mike Brown. He was still the poster child for the promotion by the time their newest rising star Jose Aldo had claimed the belt, which meant WEC 48, where the two of them met, was pretty much the best WEC card of all time. Aldo had been making cage fighting look effortlessly easy, but he didn't speak English, had only been fighting in the US for two years, and now he was a champion, desperately needed a name to fight against to build his own popularity. Well, Uriah Faber was that guy. His unbeaten streak in the promotion had been broken, but his belief in himself sure hadn't, and outside of the previous champion, he certainly had the next best chance of unseating the new phenom. When it came to the fight, however, Aldo was on another level. Far more dynamic and explosive with his striking, whilst Faber waited to counter for opportunities to rush forward, Aldo sat back and blasted him, brutalizing his leg with 31 devastating kicks across five rounds. Now familiar with fighting crippled after breaking both his hands and having to resort to elbows against Mike Brown. But this time, around, there was nothing he could do to stop the relentless onslaught of chopping kicks coming from Aldo, and he went out on his sword like Rufio as the alpha male Lost Boys just looked on. The martial arts abilities of Aldo did far more for his career than his talking ever could, and certainly a win over Faber passed the torch for the new face of the WEC. Number 6. Chris Lieben vs. Anderson Silva Although he became a household name and was anointed greatest of all time, Anderson Silva wasn't actually that popular until quite late in his UFC career, and in his debut, well, no one really knew who he was. Joe Rogan did and famously told everyone he knew to bet the house, having seen his dominance overseas in cage rage. But to UFC fans, this was just another debuter facing off against ultimate crowd-pleaser Chris Lieben, who was adored by the fan base for his reckless, unyielding rampages of violence. His appearance as a cast member on season one of The Ultimate Fighter, and he was also undefeated in the UFC. He'd won his first five fights, and was 15-1 and one in his career. But uh, this was Anderson Silva entering his prime, and despite it being the Spiders' debut, this was a middleweight title eliminator bout, so the UFC matchmakers knew exactly what they had on their hands. Lieben relentlessly marched forward as he always does, and Anderson circled and popped him with clean shot after clean shot for 45 seconds, holding onto the crippler long enough to deliver one final pulverizing knee and put an end to the massacring Red Wedding-like performance. He basically then did the same thing to Rich Franklin in the title fight in another case of of a fan favorite being on the end of a beating. From here, he went on to finish 10 of his next opponents in his 12 title defenses, and Lieben had this to say. Two days after that fight, I still thought I had just finished the fight 10 minutes earlier. Number five, Matt Hughes and Tiago Alves. 
The welterweight division has a history of dominant champions and following in the footsteps of Pat Militich, who defended the title four times, came Matt Hughes, whose takedowns and top control were damn near unstoppable and was already a staggering 29-3 in his career when he beat Carlos Newton for the welterweight belt at UFC 34, which he did by way of emphatic slam, shooting his fan appeal through the roof. It helped that Newton was a pride veteran and had just beaten the former champion in Militich, and Matt continued his display of dominance as he took out some of the best welterweights on the planet. Eventually, he lost his belt to BJ Penn, but went on another six-fight win streak, which included a submission win over George Simpia and revenge on Penn in their rematch. This took his record to 41-4, and four, still the UFC champion, and there wasn't a welterweight you can name that he hadn't already beaten. The fans could do nothing but respect his ability and body of work. GSP had earned his rematch, however, and he bested Hughes this time around, and then again in a rubber match the following year. He was humble in defeat, which only garnered more fat appeal as he headed into his next bout. Chuck Liddell had pulled out of UFC 85 in London, and it needed a new main event. Hughes, as a favorite of the UFC, agreed to take on Tiago Alves, who despite already being in the UFC for three years, had never come close to headlining a pay-per-view, and compared to Hughes, was relatively unknown. He also came in four pounds overweight, and when the cage closed, physically looked to be bigger than Matt. What was supposed to be a celebration of his 50th fight and Hall of Fame career slowly but surely turned into a massacre. The ground and pound damage kept accumulating until Alves landed a flying knee at the start of the second and Matt dropped like Boromir to the canvas. Matt had been beaten badly by the UFC newcomer and sadly would never find his way back to a title again. Number four, Demetrius Johnson versus Adriano Marais. After growing up and watching the Pride Stars compete in Japan, Demetrius Johnson finally let go of UFC gold after losing to Henry Cejudo, but turning things into a positive, he felt he could finally start to travel the world and compete as he always wanted to, over in Asia, and he signed a multi-fight deal with one championship that was going to let him do just that. Things started out as dominant as they had in the UFC, and he sailed through the one flyweight tournament, winning three fights in 2019 and earning himself a title shot. At this point, he'd certainly lived up to the hype as expected by the fans in Asia. As their biggest ever signing and former UFC champion, in just one year, he'd solidified identified himself as the number one contender. The champion was Adriano Marais, who had been fighting the best the division had to offer for a number of years and was a three-time flyweight champion. Still ask any regular fan at the time and they wouldn't have been able to tell you what organization he even fought in. The card took place on the debut of one on American television network, so of course more fans tuned in to watch the former UFC champion capture a title in another organization. From the get-go, it was clear the current champion was more than a match for DJ, as his footwork and kicks kept him blasting on the outside. It shot seemed to get closer and closer to doing some real damage until a flying knee caught Mighty Mouse by surprise and a follow-up uppercut sent him to the canvas. Right in position for a knee to the head, legal in one championship as the follow-up ground and pounding left DJ unconscious on the mat. This was the first time he'd been finished in his career and certainly a sight most fans thought they would never see. Number three, BJ Penn versus Yair Rodriguez. Unfortunately for BJ Penn, towards the end of his career, he simply refused to walk away from the sport. After losing three in a row to Rory McDonald, Nick Diaz, and a trilogy with Frankie Edgar, a fight in which he was completely dominated, he decided to hang up his gloves for three years until a potential fight with up-and-coming contender Yair Rodriguez surfaced. Seeing as they both trained at Jackson Wink and apparently revitalized, BJ expected Yair had seen him training and claimed he had told his management team, this guy doesn't have it anymore. Let's fight this guy. He's a big name and let's try and make our name off his. Sadly to me, this sounds more like someone whispering in BJ. BJ's ear trying to get him to take the fight. Several people at the gym also apparently told him Yaya is a He's going to try and fight you because he thinks you're older. His manager is trying to push for the fight. Lo and behold, two weeks later, BJ was offered the fight. So at least in his eyes, everything fit into place. He had been training hard and his coaches professed during fight week he was in the best shape of his life, coming off the three-year layoff. Penn was a complete legend, former champion in multiple weight classes and one of the most recognizable names in the sport. Yair, although exciting, hadn't put any big names on his record and was certainly an unknown in comparison. 
Yaya flew at BJ, throwing front kicks, knees, powerful head kicks, and looping punches at the end of them. BJ couldn't hang on the outside, and when he closed the distance, he was met with punishing knees. Yaya timed a perfect jumping front kick, followed by a right hand, and finished the prodigy on the canvas. Yaya got to showcase pretty much his entire arsenal as everything seemed to land, and it was clear after three minutes that BJ just had no answer to the kicking game and could do nothing but take punishment until he could no longer stand. Number two, Fedor Emelianenko. As most of you know, The Last Emperor built a 27-fight winning streak across eight years, mainly in pride, but when the organization folded and he moved to Affliction, the hope was he would instead join the UFC, and he fought just twice in Affliction before the whole promotion collapsed entirely. From there, he jumped to Strikeforce, where he was allowed to defend his Affliction WA MMA belt against Brett Rogers. Although Strikeforce was a new promotion and one that seemed to have attracted a lot of talent worldwide, there was no one on the roster that could compare to Fedor's fan appeal and fame, certainly a fan favorite above pretty much anyone else in the organization. At this point, he hadn't lost in 10 years, and even that was due to a cut. He'd had moments of vulnerability for sure, but his ability to battle through them had only grown his legend further. His first fight would be against Fabrizio Verdum, also a Pride veteran and a former member of the UFC roster, and he fell prey to his Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and the loss shook the MMA world, as for the first proper time, the last emperor had been beaten, but not necessarily battered. Then he fought another underdog and relatively unknown in Bigfoot Silver, and in the second round found himself under the Sasquatch, who rained down vicious ground and pound, handing him another stoppage loss. Then, after returning to Russia to fight an M1 Global, he took on relatively unknown fighters or veterans long from their prime, one of these being Brazilian Fabio Maldonado, another ex-UFC fighter who, apart from banging in a few contests, was relatively unknown, especially when compared to Fedor, who was back on a four-fight winning streak. Fedor came out swinging, but Fabio weathered the storm and countered with a looping hook and an absolute battering on the canvas, seeming to land more unnecessary shots than Abby did against Joel. This is fucking dog! I mean, he looked unconscious about four times, but somehow survived and in one of the most controversial decisions of all time, was awarded the win. By this point, it was clear that Fedor was a human like any other, and the hopes that he would enter the UFC and be a force to be reckoned with were pretty much over. Number one, Vandalay Silva versus Sakuraba. If you know one thing about Pride Fighting Championships, you'll know that Sakuraba was the first king of the promotion. He had come over from the world of Japanese pro wrestling, but had an effective martial arts skill set that made him unstoppable in his early days of competition. Aside from beating three members of the Gracie family and becoming known as the Gracie Hunter, he beat just about everyone on the Pride scene until he ran into Vandalay Silva, of course. The axe murderer had been cutting a bloody path through MMA promotions around the world and had received an invite to challenge for UFC gold at UFC 25 against Tito Ortiz, which he lost and so found himself back in Japan and in Pride, but fans didn't think much of him as a result. That was until he met Sakuraba for the first time at Pride 13. He'd just beaten Dan Henderson and Guy Mezger, but Saku was still the poster boy of the promotion. But it took just 1 minute and 38 seconds for Vandalay to steamroll through Kazushi, landing clubbing hooks on the feet and taking advantage of the new rule to pummel him with knees to the head once he hit the canvas. Soon it looked like a schoolyard beatdown and the ref stopped the fight, with Vandalay being the first man to beat Sakuraba in Pride outside of Igor Vachanshin, who fought in the same night after his 90-minute war with Hoist Gracie. They ran it back at Pride 17, with Saku somehow weathering all the punishment dished out across 10 minutes, until his collarbone popped through his shoulder and the contest was ended after round one. So Silver claimed the Pride middleweight belt and some fans and fame along the way. It wasn't until their third fight where the torch really changed hands. They met in the opening round of the 2003 Grand Prix tournament, bearing in mind this is only two years after they first fought. More punishment would be dealt out by Silver, but this time around after five minutes, a stiff 1-2 put him out cold for the first time in his career. Since losing to Ortiz, Vandalay Silva went on a 15-fight winning streak with only two of those wins coming by decision as he battered much of the world's best MMA fighters for the best part of five years. 
Big shout out to Luke Taylor for editing this video. You can find him and some of his amazing artwork on Twitter at cool2me underscore. Shout out to Ben Rosette and the excellent music he provided during the intro video. His music can be found on streaming platforms everywhere. There is a link in the description and follow him at Ben Rosette on Instagram and on Twitter. Thanks so much for watching today, guys. Remember to like and subscribe. I'll see you in the next one.